Well, good evening, everybody. I'm so blessed to be um, be able to share God's word with you. Uh, my name is Reggie Rodriguez. I'm one of the members here at Bethany Baptist Church. Um, I know my wife, Sandra, and I have been incredibly blessed since we've been um, here in this fellowship, and it's a delight to be able to share from Ephesians tonight with you. Um, I'm going to start off with a, a brief illustration. My, my wife, Sandra, and I recently traveled uh, to New York City about three weeks ago, and I had been to New York City a few times. She had never been. And so one of the things that I was really looking forward to was seeing her reaction to uh, just taking in the city and some of the spectacular sights there. Um, I wanted to see her reaction as she saw the Manhattan skyline, as it's pretty incredible. Uh, I don't think there's any other skyline that I've seen like it. Um, I wanted to see her reaction when she walked the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge and saw the city of Manhattan just in furl in front of her. I think most of all, though, I wanted to see her uh, reaction when she saw um, the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty, um, I, you know, all through my childhood, I was just had this image of what it looked like uh, growing up in the school system that I did, just looking at the history books. It, I always longed to see the Statue of Liberty, and when I finally saw it, it was really breathtaking and awe-inspiring to me. I think it's just so iconic. Um, I think a couple of things that make it so for me are that um, I had read stories about how, like, during World War I, when the soldiers uh, sailed away from, uh, sailed through the New York Harbor out to war, it's like the last thing that they saw. And as they returned from war uh, and entered the New York Harbor, it was the first thing that they saw. And also thinking um, back to um, on my maternal, on my mom's side, my great-great-grandparents, it's the way that they entered this country and it's the way a lot of people have entered this country. And so for all those reasons and just something about the way that that statue is exalted on that pedestal, um, I just wanted to see her reaction to it. Uh, I also wanted to see her reaction to um, just the grandeur of, of going on that ferry uh, off of Battery Park and seeing uh, the statue. So. I recently read uh, that Richard Morris Hunt, he was the architect that was commissioned to build the pedestal for the statue. And um, his vision was to create a pedestal that would not steal the show itself, but highlight the beauty and the wonder of liberty. In the end, he designed a pedestal that was an 87-foot tall structure with a granite facade. He did a great job, and this pedestal exalts one of the most famous monuments in the world, in a similar way, God's glory is put on display by his saving of us through salvation by grace. Now, if you will turn with me to the book of Ephesians, I'll give you a second to get there. Uh, the book of Ephesians is about halfway through the New Testament. If you don't have your own copy of the Bible, there should be a hard um, cover copy of uh, the Pew Bible in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 1036. I believe it's 1036. I believe there's maybe one verse that spills over to 1037, but for the most part, you're going to find it all on 1036. And we're going to read uh, from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, 
carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. A little background on the book of Ephesians before we get deeper into our passages, which again are verses 1 through 10. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul in what most scholars believe is around um, the year A.D. 61 or 62. This letter of Ephesians is included in what we refer to as Paul's prison letters, as he was under house arrest in Rome. If you want to read more about that, I would encourage you to just jot down Acts 28, uh, where you can read more about that. He was being persecuted for his faith. And Paul's writing to believers located in Asia Minor. Uh, I was reading uh, a commentary by Harold Honer, and um, he believes that the impersonal nature of this letter um, means that it, it falls into the category of a circular letter. So that means that its general teaching applies universally to the church. And that's helpful for us today. And this scenario may well have been not one of a large church, but many house churches scattered throughout the city and in the area surrounding the city. The book of Ephesians is divided into two main parts. The first three chapters deal with doctrinal issues. They tell us what's true of God and what God has done for us. The last three chapters detail what we should do about it, how we are to walk and how we are to live. So nowhere is there a greater disparity, a greater before and after picture, if you will, than when you see someone come to a saving faith who was previously enslaved to a life of, say, alcohol, drugs, sexual immorality, or involvement in gangs. The contrast is amazing. The word contrast uh, is defined as, in the dictionary that I looked at, the state of being strikingly different. This is greatly accentuated when those who are marginalized in society get saved. About 20 years, 20 years ago, I was on a rising trajectory in my career. I mean, things were going very, very well. I was climbing the proverbial company ladder, as they say. In title, I was rising from manager to regional manager to vice president of sales to president and eventually owned my own company. The company was a striking success, and in a three-year period, my partner and I built the company from its inception to a point where we knew that we could sell it for uh, a large profit. And we did just that. And after that, 
It took me only about that same three years to squander it all, wastefully spending all that money. The prodigal son should come to mind. During this period, I began to develop a taste for what the world would refer to the finer things in life. I developed ex expensive tastes and began to believe that I deserved more in all aspects of my life, including my marriage. I justified leaving my wife, saying that I would remarry someone more compatible. I told myself that marrying someone in business like myself would be better for my kids and even improve upon the way they were being raised. I eventually became so disenchanted that I walked away from my family, leaving five kids at home. I justified this in my mind, but deep down, I knew the truth. I did stay connected to my kids, even coaching my oldest son's baseball team, but there was major damage being done in the eroding of the very fabric of the family unit. It was a very ugly and self-absorbed period of my life. There was a lot of tension between me and their mom, and they were caught in the crossfire, even though we tried our best to protect them. It's with a heavy heart that I have to recall these things, sharing mostly in hope that I can help others that may be caught in a situation that may, that may parallel this. The biggest impact was to my oldest son, Robert, he's here tonight, as he spiraled into a sinful lifestyle of drugs and gangs. The divorce had serious implications on his life. I don't want to in any way minimize individual accountability for, for our sins. Each one of us is without excuse and fully accountable to God for our sins. However, there were undeniable implications for my sinful choices on the life of my kids. Ephesians 4, 17, 30, I think gives a good description of the way that I was walking. It says, walking in the futility of our thoughts, hardness of heart, callous, given over to promiscuity, and practicing every kind of impurity with an insatiable desire, as these things never satisfy. We know that only the things of God can fully satisfy us. Ephesians 4.22 talks about corrupted by deceitful desires, and 5.18 goes on to say, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, and this was often true of me, but instead of being controlled by alcohol, be controlled by the indwelling spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity uh, to be in front of this church family and just pray, God, that, um, that your name would be exalted, God. As we look at this passage, Lord, it is a glorious passage. It is the gospel on display. And I just pray, God, that your spirit would convict those that need to be convicted. If there be any here, Lord, tonight that don't know you, I pray that... Um, that you would open their hearts to believe, that you would grant them the repentance that leads to life. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take a look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, so I, I want to propose to you that the main purpose of this passage is verse 7. And verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So think in terms of a wheel, how um, a wheel has a hub and then the rest of the wheel rotates around that hub. I want to propose to you that verse 7 is the wheel that the rest of the verses revolve around.
first we're gonna, um, well, we who were dead, and this is why, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins will ultimately be displays of God's love and kindness and mercy. So let's take a look at the first three verses. And I'll, I'll repeat them again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Verse one tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So think about that term being dead. We were spiritually dead. And because we were dead, we were without hope. What's true of those who are dead? Can a, can a dead person please God in any way? No. No amount of self-help here will suffice. The journey to salvation does not begin by looking inward. So we're spiritually dead, life without God. When you're dead, death, death is non-relational, powerless, and corrupting. Ernest Best described it this way, as a consequence of sin, people have no relation to God and distorted relations with each other. They are powerless to change and are being pulled down to destruction. In verses two through three, we also see that we are enslaved and we're enslaved to three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the world value system. The world value system pervades our thinking. We value, esteem, and hold high the same things the world values. Things like success, money, titles, physical appearance, partiality, we prefer different types of people and give them preference over others. If you go on social media today, it doesn't take you very long to see this on display. It's all about uh, valuing what the world does, and that's what a lot of social media exalts. In verse two, the second half of verse two, we see that we are enslaved to the devil, and it's described here as according to the ruler of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air, this is a personal reference to Satan. The devil is at work in disobedient people. We're also enslaved to the flesh. In verse three, what's in view here is our being enslaved to our own appetites, lacking restraint, being ruled by our own worldly appetites. So the, the thinking here is um, people don't deny themselves the pleasures that, that pop into their mind, whatever those may be. There's a thought, a, pleasurable, a pleasure that you want to seek, and you seek it. There's no restraint. Now, as a result of this, what does it mean? Verse two, I'm sorry, verse three, the second half of that says that we were by nature children under wrath. We are under God's wrath as a result of this. Our sin incurs the wrath of a holy God. Our sin puts us at enmity with God. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. 
God's wrath is to be feared because God promises eternal punishment apart from Christ. We see that in Matthew 25, 46. So we're in a hopeless state. We're dead. Again, dead people cannot please God. Because we're dead, there's nothing that we can do to inch towards God. We don't need, we don't need a hand. We need new life. We need to be resurrected to life. And then verse 4 is an amazing verse, an amazing source of encouragement. The first two words of verse 4 says, but God. What, what wondrous words right there. Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God. So what do we see about God? We see that he's rich in mercy. Praise be to God that he's rich in mercy. God's mercy on his helpless enemies flows from his own loving heart, not from anything they have done to deserve it. And then we see God set into action in verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned before, we didn't need a helping hand. We needed regeneration. Just like when Jesus called Lazarus, Lazarus out of the tomb in a John 11:38, we needed to be made alive. And then verse 6 talks about being resurrected with Christ. The same power that resurrected Christ from the grave is now at work in giving us a new life and a new heart with new desires. We're co-exalted with Christ. In a sense... We are experiencing this now. It's kind of the tension between the already and not yet. We'll fully realize that when Christ returns. So then that brings us to verse 7, which is the why, the why behind this. Why does God do this? I'll read verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages, so the, the, the first two words, so that, are our key here. In the coming ages, he might display the measurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Aren't we grateful that his riches are immeasurable? God displays the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ. We will ultimately be displays of God's kindness, love, and mercy. Now, a lot of what I'm going to share right here, I um, picked up on in um, a class that I took with Brian Vickers from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I really, really, it really moved me and really resonated with me, and I wanted to share some of his thinking here. We will ultimately be displays of God's kindness, love, and mercy. God saving us through faith alone, by grace alone, puts God's glory on display. It holds it up. It's the foundation for it. Grace is the foundation upon which our good works are built. 
This displays the immeasurable riches of his glory. In a sense, verses 8 and 9 hold up verse 7. This is what we mean when we say that God's glory is put on display. He will show us his kindness and grace when he puts his glory on display. I'm going to turn to Ezekiel 36. Um, you can turn there if you like, or if you do, just hold your finger in Ephesians because we'll certainly come back to it. But I believe there's a sense of what, um, what we see in Ezekiel 36 that, um, that touches on this in verses 21 and 22. It says, Then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. God does these things because of his holy name, because of his goodness. And then we come to the last two verses, verses 9 and 10. Um, but I, I want to say something else about verses 8 and 9, just backing up a little bit to verse 8. If I were to ask most of you, because most of you are very familiar with this portion of Scripture, if I were to ask most of you, which part of this passage are you most familiar with? Which part of this passage have most of you even had to memorize or you've taught your kids? What would you guys say? What? 8 and 9. 8 and 9, right? It's the most probably the most well-known part of Ephesians. Most of us know that verse. If you've grown up exposed to the Bible. Um, I know years ago when I was an Awana leader, it's something that we absolutely taught the kids to memorize. And in um, verses eight and nine say, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. I memorized it in the King James. Um, I think I still have that. But that's not the main port part of this passage, and it can't be because it can't stand on its own. And so that's why I say verse 7 is the main part of this passage. It's the reason behind why God saves us. So in looking at um, 9 and 10, salvation is a gift. God acted on our behalf, on our behalf, because we could do nothing to save ourselves. Works are repudiated as the basis for our salvation. We see that in verse 9, where it says, not from works so that no one can boast. And then in verse 10, works are the fruit of our salvation. We are now what God eternally determined that we would be. I'm going to close by reading um, some quotes from a book that I looked at this week that had been highly recommended to me. Uh, I think a lot of people in church are either reading it or are going to be reading it. It's by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. He's got a chapter um, that talks about uh, Ephesians 2.7. And here's a couple of quotes. He says, in regard to verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean for those in Christ? It means that one day God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia 
and we will stand there, paralyzed with joy, wonder, astonishment, and relief. It means that as we stand there, we will never be scolded for the sins of this life, never looked at suspectly and told, enjoy this, but remember, you don't deserve this. We'll never be told that. Speaking of being in union with Christ, do you realize what is true of you if you are in Christ? Those in union with him are promised that all the haunted brokenness that infects everything, every relationship, every conversation, every family interaction, every email, every text message gone wrong, will one day be rewound and reversed. The more darkness and pain you experience in this life, the more resplendence and relief in the next. If you are in Christ, in a sense, you have been eternally invincibilized. Ephesians 2.7 is telling you that your death is not an end, but a beginning. Not a wall, but a door. Not an exit, but an entrance. So today, God has begun the work of redeeming the brokenness in my life. In this, last, in this season of my life right now, um, he's blessed me with a beautiful, godly wife. And he's begun to do miraculous work in our blended family. One year ago, my oldest daughter, who at one point adamantly stated that she would never marry, married a wonderful Christian man, and she asked me to marry them. Seven months ago, God saved my son Robert from the clutches of addiction, addiction to drugs and gangs. Today, he's thriving in an amazing biblical recovery home where God is lavishing him with kindness and grace and in the process of restoring our relationship. Three weeks ago, my stepson married a wonderful Christian lady and they asked me to marry them. Bringing together a blended family is tough. And in the beginning, there was a lot of uh, tough times. There was a lot of, um, he was, prior to that, he was the man of the house in some ways. And so me coming into that relationship, um, there was some tense times and some, um, some difficulty in bringing these, uh, this family together. So when they asked me to marry them, it was, um, I was so humbled. I'm in awe of God's restoration because of his kindness to me in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is your self-revelation. We thank you, God, that you reveal yourself to us fully in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would, um, that you would have been glorified, Lord, tonight in this passage, that we would walk away from here um, just in awe of your glory and in your immeasurable riches and kindness to us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that um, we would live this week in a way that honors you and brings glory to your name. I pray that we would walk in the power of your spirit and that we would let your spirit control us in how we live. Help us to share the gospel freely with others that you bring into our lives. Help us to have sensitivity to divine appointments. And I just pray, God, that we would uh, be bold through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>